Hey guys, how's your week going? You are going to be so stoked about this week's episode with Ariel Taylor. Do you follow her? She's on Instagram at Carried with Love. She's a pretty well-known surrogate. And I had the opportunity to interview her on a couple of her surrogate babies. And right before I published this episode, she just gave birth to another Sarah baby. So go ahead and follow her on Instagram at Carried with Love. And then let's listen to this episode. Let's get to it. What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does a day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. Hey guys, before we get started, I just wanted to share with you a little bit about Melissa Euler and Melissa Euler Coaching. She is my executive coach. And if you didn't catch her birth stories, rewind a couple of episodes and start at the beginning. So Melissa is a former finance executive turned life and leadership coach, and she's really passionate about helping women thrive. Let me tell you about how I met Melissa. I had left corporate America after 15 years, making lots and lots of money, much more than my partner. And I was feeling that urge inside to like shift, to change. My son had just been diagnosed with cerebral palsy and I felt like I needed to be home, but I also felt like I needed to be at work doing something. So Melissa helped me get really focused and creative and polish what eventually became Birth Story Media. A couple of months after I quit corporate America, to take care of my child and perhaps grow a business, I found out I was going to be a single mother. My marriage was ending. And I was so thankful for Melissa Euler and Melissa Euler coaching because she helped me grow a business in less than two years to a six-figure income. If you are feeling that nagging feeling inside of you that your life needs a shift too, maybe just a focus or a transition in your life, as you're entering maybe motherhood for the first time or motherhood again, then I urge you to reach out to Melissa Euler. She has an amazing thriving mothers group coaching program and she starts everything with a discovery call. So you can book a 30 minute discovery call to get a taste for what it's like to work with Melissa. And if you book a discovery call and mention that you heard all about Melissa from my birth story podcast, She is going to give you a free one-on-one coaching session added to any package that you may purchase. 
That's a $200 value. Trust me, I pay it weekly. It is worth every dime. So all you ambitious women out there listening to this podcast, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, maybe you have your own business, maybe you're in corporate America, maybe you've been dreaming about what's next in this next chapter. You're juggling a lot of things, I know. I was too. So I urge you to reach out to Melissa if you are on the brink of change and look for that extra support and encouragement in her. She will help you reach your goals with ease. I promise. All right, let's get to it. Welcome to the Birth Story Podcast, Ariel. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited because today we are talking all about your births, but a special topic in surrogacy. And so will you just kind of walk us through your five pregnancies, like a high level overview before we dig into them? (laughs) And then also who you are so that we can tell listeners a little bit about what to expect on today's show. Sure. So my name is Ariel. I live in London, Ontario, Canada, and I'm a surrogate. I have been a surrogate three times and I'm currently pregnant with my fourth surrogate baby. I've carried for three different families and this is a sibling for uh, my second surrogate baby. So that's very special. And I have one daughter of my own who's five and a half. And then I have two stepdaughters who are seven and 11. And then of course, I live with my partner as well. So they have all been very, very supportive of my surrogacy. And as far as like my birth history, my daughter uh, was a planned home birth with a midwife. We got all the way to 36 weeks and then she flipped breach and wouldn't flip back. So that ended up being a planned C-section, which was a little bit different than I expected, of course. And then my first surrogacy, unfortunately, ended in a miscarriage at 16 weeks with a pretty traumatic DNC, unfortunately. So that was tough, but I didn't really want my surrogacy story to end there. So after being medically cleared, I went on to have my second surrogate baby, which was a successful VBAC and a wonderful birth that the parents were present for, uh, which was a really, really great experience. My most recent surrogate baby, was an attempted VBAC turned emergency C-section, but he was born healthy and happy and he's, uh, he's almost two now. So my two surrogate babies that I successfully gave birth to are three, just over three and almost two. And you're pregnant again. So I how am. far along are you right now? <laughs> I was 13 weeks yesterday. Congratulations. And this is Thank with you. a sibling. Yes, a sibling for the, the VBAC birth that I had. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. We'll describe them by births instead of babies, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Well, I can't wait to like just get into this. I'm so excited for this interview because I have so much to learn from you. And I know listeners are going to be like hanging on to every single word. <laughs> so let's start with just like the beginning of your journey, right? Because you have a daughter who's five and a half and a partner and these two stepdaughters. And so walk me through, like, I know you had just mentioned, like it ended in a, in a, planned cesarean at the hospital after you planned this home birth. So tell me about like how your pregnancy went. Like, did you get pregnant easily? Did you have a fertility journey? We did get pregnant pretty easily. So I was married at the time. So my husband and I had been married about a year and we were kind of like trying, but not like not, not trying kind of thing. And after about a year, we still weren't pregnant. So we were like, "Hmm, that's kind of weird, but we weren't really actively trying, you know? So we ended up kind of reaching out to a fertility clinic and I had, we had just kind of started kind of the investigation like, Hey, is there a reason we're not getting pregnant? So 
I actually had an HSG test, which is basically where they put a dye up through your cervix and to spill out through your fallopian tube so they can make sure they're clear. And I actually had a blockage on the one side. So they were able to clear that blockage. And the very next month I was pregnant. How did they clear the blockage? So just by putting that dye up through the cervix, it helps kind of clear the fallopian tubes. And I had my appendix out uh, when I was early 20s. And so that may have caused some debris, apparently, in my fallopian tubes. Apparently, that's a thing. I had no idea. But they were able to kind of clear that blockage and whatever was kind of in there. And so once that was clear and my fallopian tubes were open, they also, I think, dilate your fallopian tubes a little bit like by putting that dye up there. So I think that kind of helps too. I found out years later, actually, that I have a very high AMH count, which means I ovulate a lot of eggs, probably two to three every cycle. Mm. Uh, yes. <laughs> I found that out through my process doing egg donations as well, that my AMH was, was very high and I produce a lot of eggs. So after that test, I got pregnant very easily. And we actually found out we were pregnant because I passed out in my shower and went to the hospital and they're like, oh, like you're, you're pregnant. I was like, what? <laughs> Everybody was there. Like my mom was there. My partner at the time, his mom was there. And so we never really got that like surprise we're pregnant moment because everybody found out the same moment I found out. <laughs> wow. That is I was barely pregnant. Like my HCG was 13. Wow. So it was, it was very early. <laughs> So I have so many of my doctors that say like, this is how we used to diagnose pregnancy was with passing out. <laughs> it's so common at the beginning. Yeah. I hit the floor at six weeks pregnant. I was in sales and I was at a doctor's office. I was a pharmaceutical sales rep and I was at a doctor's office, like trying to sell my drugs to them. And I, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm passing out. And I hit the floor. And when I came back to, I just opened my eyes and I was like, I'm pregnant. And the doctor was like, oh, okay, you're fine. Like, get up, you know, <laughs> but I had already known I was pregnant. So anyone listening, if you pass out, it's completely normal. You just need to up your salt and water <laughs> intake. Yep. And I experienced a lot of dizziness in early pregnancy with all of my pregnancies. So it was, that's the only one I think I've actually ever passed out for, but you know, hot water in the shower and you know, all that kind of stuff. So I'm a little bit extra careful now with the dizziness that I always experience in early pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, cold showers it was for me for both of my pregnancies after that. So I totally get it. So other than the dizziness and stuff, I mean, pretty healthy pregnancy. I'm one of those lucky people that do not get morning sickness. Through all five pregnancies, I have not had any morning sickness at all. <laughs> Amazing. Um, <laughs> I get really tired. So it's a lot of naps, but most of the time, honestly, I feel really good, except for just a little bit of dizziness and some extra fatigue. But I have very good pregnancies and her pregnancy was, was great. I felt really good. I didn't have a lot of symptoms. I didn't gain a lot of weight, kind of the normal like 25 to 30 pounds. I felt really good. I didn't have any like adverse side effects, like a lot of swelling or a lot of anything like that. I honestly had a really, really great pregnancy. And so how old were you? I was, oh gosh, I think I was 22. I got married very, very young. I was 21 when I got married. And then I think I was pregnant at 22 and then gave birth at 23. Okay. So young, healthy, really good pregnancies. What was attractive to you about home birth in Canada? So I love the model of care of midwives. I, I love how patient-centered they are. I love that 
I felt like I had a voice, like what I wanted mattered. I really wanted that like intimate experience of birth. And so with Scarlett, that's my daughter, we, we had planned a home birth. We had a birth tub. I had a doula as well and did kind of like home birth classes. Like I was really prepared to do, you know, a medication free home birth. And I was really sad when it ended up in a C-section because Scarlett turned breech, I think around 34, 35 weeks. And I will tell you, we tried absolutely everything to flip her. I was laying upside down on an ironing board. I was doing somersaults in the pool. I did moxibustion, which is kind of like this... I don't even know. It honestly looks like a really big cigar that they like light on one side and they put it on the sides of your feet. And it's like this natural way to apparently flip babies. It did not work. The only thing that we did not try is we decided against the external version uh, where they go in and they try to flip the baby by pushing it around. We decided not to do that. We had kind of done everything else. I did osteopathy as well. So to try acupuncture, honestly, everything. And she wasn't flipping. And so eventually kind of at that, you know, 37, 38 week mark, it's like, you know what, if she's not flipping, like maybe there's a reason, you know, so she ended up going in for a planned C-section. Honestly, I did have a good experience with the C-section. It was a little scary. It's, it's a little strange being awake. If anyone's listening right now and they are like, oh, my baby just flipped breech and, you know, wanting to try some of the things that Ariel tried, then you can go to my website, birthstory.com and click on the workbook. And in the workbook, there is a free guide on how to flip a breech baby where I talk about in depth a little bit more about the external version and the moxibustion and the spinning babies techniques and the different things that you can do. So you can grab that free guide at birthstory.com if anyone's interested in learning a little bit more about what in the world is she talking about, like doing somersaults (laughs) in the pool. Oftentimes these things work. I was wondering if you know what type of breech Scarlet was like footling breech or a frank breech? Like, did you know what position breech she was Yeah. In? So uh, right around like the 37 week mark, she was kind of bum down with legs up and head up. So like a V okay. with her bum down. And I had actually talked to my midwife about attempting a vaginal delivery with a breech baby. She was, pr- she was measuring pretty small. All of the babies I've had were under seven pounds. So she was measuring pretty small and, you know, we had a conversation about it. The OB was concerned because it was my first delivery, like my first pregnancy, first delivery. So they were nervous about doing a breech delivery. I honestly wish I would have researched a little more and maybe, it, maybe attempted it. But right around, I think right around like 37, 38 weeks, she put one of her foot, like one of her legs down. So she had one leg up, one leg. She was like, honestly, a contortionist in there. And kind of with the positioning, it wouldn't have been safe to even attempt it because, you know, they could have broken her legs or something trying to get her out. So yeah, it was, it was kind of no choice, but to go to a C-section at that point. Got it. For anyone listening, if you have, are facing a breach, you know, baby who's stubborn and not turning, it is worth a conversation with your provider to know exactly like what the position is, because there are some positions and breach positions that are safe for delivery. If you can find a supportive provider that is trained, there are a lot of obstetricians and midwives that go to additional training for breach births. So unfortunately, we don't have a lot of them in my area, but (laughs) you know, uh, throughout the world, there are many providers that are supportive and know what they're doing. 
But when you've got one leg up and one leg down, that's a whole sort of like gymnastics, you know, thing that goes into C-section. So tell me about what, like how far along, what gestation were you when they scheduled your cesarean? So she was born at 39 weeks and five days. So right up close to full term, which was good. I hadn't gone into labor. I had no signs of labor, nothing kind of at that point. Okay. Yeah. We got as close as possible to the end. Excellent. And then was it like, do they do the cesareans in the morning or the afternoon, the evening? Like what time of day were you asked to come in? I want to say we had to, oh my gosh, I can't even remember now. She was born at like just after two o'clock in the afternoon, I think. I should know this. (laughs) But I think we had to be at the hospital around like 8 a.m. and stuff to kind of get checked in and everything. So I remember the night before I like could not sleep at all. I was wide awake. I remember actually reading, I was reading Harry Potter (laughs) on my couch because I was just trying to find something to like distract myself and keep myself busy. So I picked up Harry Potter and like read that until the wee hours of the morning until I finally fell asleep on my couch and stuff. (laughs) I can't even imagine the anxiety the (laughs) night before like major abdominal surgery. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd be panicking. I'd love to hear from the audience and know like what people do to stay calm, you know, you know, reading Harry Potter on the couch. Like that's a good one. (laughs) I'm like taking an Ambien. I'm like, that sounds like a good, (laughs) good plan too. I don't even know if they'd let you do that, but something to, to just calm the anxiety. Now you've had two cesarean sections. Um, so this one, and then your fourth pregnancy, we know, um, from your highlights, ended in an emergency cesarean section also. Could you talk to us a little bit about what that recovery is like, like some of the things that helped you in your recovery from your cesareans? Yeah. So with the plan C-section, so with my daughter, obviously it's a very different experience going home by yourself after a circuit delivery and then going home with a newborn that is your very first baby and your very first time being a mom. So the recovery period was so different between the two, of course, because, you know, it was just, I think with, with my daughter, it, it was, you're so distracted by the newborn and like the shock of like, oh my God, I'm a mother now and like a hundred percent responsible for this human that I just met like two hours ago. So I think you're kind of uh, in shock from that, <laughs> but I actually had a pretty decent recovery with both of them actually. So with my daughter, I think I stayed in the hospital for three days or three nights. And kind of that time was spent trying to figure out how to breastfeed and trying to figure out how to be a parent and take care of this baby. And lots of friends and family came to visit at the hospital. So that was really, really nice. My husband at the time went back to work two days after I gave birth. So I was in the hospital by myself, except for my mom, my sister, and some friends and stuff that came and visited. And I remember he he had to go to work. So he literally picked us up from the hospital and drove us home and carried her upstairs for me. We lived in an apartment and then he had to go to work. And I literally remember walking in the apartment and her car seat was down and the door closed behind me and it was like dead silent. And I'm just like staring at this baby and I still have my like mesh underwear on with like the taping all over my C-section. I was so puffy and swollen and all the pain meds and it was just dead quiet. And I remember just like looking at her and being like, huh okay, what are we going to do now? (laughs) It was just this like, that was the moment where I was like, 
holy crap, I'm a parent. That make, <laughs> like brings me to tears. I mean, I like, know, me too. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like tears in my eyes hearing you say that. Like, it's just this overwhelming moment of like, <laughs> like I can remember a similar moment of walking in the door and being home, but like my husband was there and he had a lot of time off work and my mom was there. Like, I cannot even imagine like having that door closed and it, on minute one of home from the cesarean section, what'd you do? Honestly, I don't even, I barely even remember. It was such a blur. I think, I think maybe that's the the difficult part about having a C-section is they're, you know, it's painful, obviously. When they do the C-section, they kind of put a lot of freezing and stuff over it. So when they're inside, so that, that kind of helps the pain, but then you're on, I was on like morphine and Percocet, I think after for pain, obviously like low doses, manageable doses. Cause I still had to, you know, take care of a baby alone. But, um, yeah. yeah. And my mom and my sister came over a lot. The church that we were a part of made meals and everybody came over and people brought diapers. So there was a lot of kind of traffic kind of through everyone meeting the baby and stuff. So You know, honestly, I spent a lot of time on the couch. (laughs) I had a doula that came over quite often and I had a midwife. So all of my aftercare with Scarlett was done at the house. So I didn't have to leave. I obviously couldn't drive for about six weeks. So yeah, I remember our first day we watched Ever After, uh, which is my favorite movie. (laughs) And, you know, just trying to figure out what to do and you're so tired and you're trying to keep up on the meds and you're like, Oh my gosh, I need to eat something or like, Oh my God, when am I going to take a shower? Yeah, it was, it was a little bit of a rough, I'm sure every new mom can probably relate to it. It's like this twilight zone of those first couple days and weeks of like, it's kind of just a blur. (laughs) Yeah. I think one of the things like we can say is, but here you are. And five pregnancies later, and you've basically been pregnant nonstop for like six years, you know, basically what it feels like. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, there's hope. Like if anyone is facing a planned cesarean section, like it's going to be okay. It's going to be really difficult. And you're probably going to crawl into that bed and just cry and wait till someone can help you. And, but you know, the hours go by and the days go by and you learn each other, you and the baby. And you're going to be just fine. My biggest advice is learning how to get in and out of the bed after a cesarean section. Yes, that took me a very long time. Yeah. So (laughs) let's talk about some of like the tools and tips for moving around after a cesarean section. So my only advice that I can give is I had gallbladder surgery. And so I had this in a hernia fixed on my umbilical, like an umbilical hernia from being pregnant. And so I was actually stalking all the Instagram pages and calling my cesarean moms saying like, help me. Like, I know I tried to help you, but help me. And so I started looking at how to get in and out of bed after abdominal surgery and how to get up and around. And so the one piece of advice I would give anyone is nose to toes. So everyone had told me, like my client said it had cesarean sections or that you roll to the side of the bed, try to get your feet on the floor without engaging your abdominal muscles, like using your arms to try to push you up. And then before you stand up, putting your nose forward as far as possible over your toes and then using your thigh muscles to stand up. And that was brilliant for disengaging the abs in the stomach. So tell me a little bit about like, what are some of your best tips for like 
I don't know, getting to the toilet or getting off there, wiping, you know, like, are there any things that you can remember doing after your two cesareans that you're like, this really helped me? The first one, honestly, I, I barely remember the first six weeks. Honestly, I think that's probably my biggest regret about, you know, a C-section and the blur of it all is I, I don't really remember a lot of after her birth because it was just that new mom blur of feedings and changings and trying to figure out life now with this new baby. But I can say after my second C-section, now this one was an emergency C-section. I was not awake. I was put to sleep for it because they had two minutes to get the baby out. And this was a surrogate baby for two dads. And this was kind of a unique healing experience because he was born two days before Christmas of 2018. And so the dads were here. They stayed with us before and after the birth. So the baby technically did come home with me and they stayed because they were from the state. So they had to wait for the birth certificate. So they actually stayed with my family in our spare room for I think about three, three and a half weeks. And that recovery was, I remember that one very, very clearly. (laughs) And that one was so different because I had so much help and I didn't have to take care of the baby. So my current partner now, Brandon, he was honestly the biggest help in my C-section recovery that I could even think of. He was amazing. We had, uh, when we went home, I begged them to let me go home after 36 hours so I could get home for Christmas morning. I was like, we are not bringing all the the presents to the hospital. (laughs) So they let me go home because I had a C-section before. I had three men living at my house to help. (laughs) And adult diapers are your best friend. I did not have them with my first C-section. I don't know why, but adult diapers are the best thing in the whole world. I lived in them for a solid three weeks, honestly. And there were times when I was literally walking around in like a bra and a diaper. I didn't even care. I I think that that is such great advice because (laughs) like the first one, you know, you walked us through getting home and he shuts the door and there you are in your mesh underwear. And it's like, oh my gosh, the adult diapers really are so much more supportive, softer, amazing, (laughs) effective, you know, because you may have some urine leakage, but you're bleeding. You know, people are surprised to learn that you still bleed after a cesarean, vaginally bleed after Mm -hmm. a cesarean section. And I'm like, oh, your cervix still opens. Yeah, (laughs) even with a cesarean section and you're you (laughs) shed all of the blood from where the placenta detaches. And as that wound inside your uterus is healing. So people are surprised to hear that mm-hmm. you'll still bleed for four or six weeks or up to four to six weeks when you have a cesarean section. Yeah. So I second those adult diapers. <laughs> Always with the diapers. All the way. Okay. Well, I want to pivot because I'm so, my curiosity is like killing the cat over here because you're married and you have a daughter. And then like all these other stories are like you have a n- new partner and all of this surrogate support. Yep. And so I have to know, like, if you're comfortable sharing, like, but like what happened? Like, I mean, something (laughs) happened in your marriage. It dissolved. You find a new partner, Brandon, and you go on this egg donation and surrogacy journey. That's so beautiful. But I'm like, I have to understand how, like, how did your life (laughs) change significantly from that moment of like, I hear you are alone with your daughter, your husband's at work to the life that you have today. Yeah. So honestly, it's, it's not, a, not too difficult of a story. You know, um, my ex-husband and I were married for five years. I wouldn't say anything went wrong necessarily. We just kind of grew apart. 
you know, we got married at 21. We were very young. We had our daughter and we separated about, I want to say about almost four years ago now. And then Brandon and I have been together for three. My ex-husband and I still co-parent very, very well. We share custody of our daughter. We got divorced without lawyers. We, we get along very, very well still. He has a new fiance who is wonderful and is a great stepmom to my daughter. And Brandon is a great stepdad to our daughter. The four of us all go to her first day of school and her cheer competitions. And we have been able to co-parent exceptionally well. And my very first surrogacy, the one that ended in a miscarriage, I was uh, married to my ex-husband at that time. So he was around for surrogacy as well. Very, very supportive. What brought you to surrogacy then? (laughs) Honestly, I really, I think initially, I really just wanted to help somebody. I had a great pregnancy. We did not want to have any more kids. Scarlett was our one and only. (laughs) I really, I was intrigued by it. And I, I really thought like, you know what? I could definitely grow a baby for somebody else. And I kind of just started looking into it and, and it just kind of took off from there. You know, I really just wanted to help people. I don't think I really understood my why until I gave birth to a surrogate baby and watched the parents be there and meet their son for the first time. And I think that was really, now I tell people, I was like, you know what? I, I watched two people become parents after years and years and years of infertility. And that is definitely the why I became a surrogate. Cool. Um, so you also mentioned egg donation. So is that mm-hmm. something that you do in addition to surrogacy? Yeah, I've done uh, four egg donations kind of in between pregnancies and stuff like that. And same reason, right? I just, I wanted to, I wanted to help people. I have good eggs, I've been told. <laughs> and I know that there has been uh, at least one baby born from those donations. They've kind of all been in the last three-ish years. I'm not sure about any any other ones. But yeah, so I've I've done that and I've enjoyed that experience as well. And honestly, it's just I'm not using them. <laughs> and I really just wanted to to help somebody, you know? You are an angel, Ariel. <laughs> I mean, I just there is a special place in this world for surrogates and I just love hearing your heart on this. I'm just wanting to help people. I mean, it just speaks a lot about who you are and also what type of mother you are. And so I want to hear so much more about these <laughs> surrogate journeys. So Ariel, I would be really interested to hear from you about your first surrogacy experience, which unfortunately ended in a miscarriage at 16 weeks. And you had mentioned having a DNC at the hospital. It is devastating. We're recording. Let me say this. We are recording this episode on October the 12th of 2020. And October is Infant Loss and Awareness Month. I mean, this is where we're really honoring these types of stories and these babies and the moms that have gone through this. And so I'm just curious, like when you're pregnant with a surrogate baby, like, do you feel like a mom in any way to this baby? Like, do you mentally have to detach? Where I'm getting with this is, just to say it bluntly, I guess, is do you feel like emotionally losing this child at 16 weeks? I don't know, even know how to ask you this question, but like, (laughs) how did it feel essentially? Like, what was that like for you? Because I can imagine what that was like for the expecting parents. They clearly have some reason that they've gone to surrogacy and then they are for all intents and purposes in the clear. 
at 16 weeks. I don't know where to start. <laughs> what happened? How did you find out? Yeah. How did you find out the baby was gone? To kind of go back a little bit with just that one. So I was matched with this family. They lived relatively local to me. So we got to meet and see each other. They had one daughter already that she was able to carry, but kind of due to some issues, she wasn't able to carry. And they had one embryo left at their fertility clinic because she was able to carry the first one. So that's kind of what brought them to surrogacy. So we did our first embryo transfer and it was successful. Everything was great. Pregnancy went really well. I kind of got all the way to 13 weeks. We did our the NT scan. Everything looked looked great. All the genetics came back good. We were really thinking we were in the clear, of course, right? After you get through the first trimester, you're like, everything's fine. And then at 15 weeks and four days actually is when I miscarried. So a few days before that, I started having really bad headaches, like extremely bad headaches. And I was swelling up a little bit. And so I called my midwife and she's like, no, headaches are normal. Swelling's normal. Put your feet up, you know, take a break, drink some water. And then the next day things were not better. They were worse. I called again. She's like, it's normal. Everything's fine. She came and checked me. Everything was okay. And then I was really just not feeling well. Something was not right. So I ended up going to the hospital and they had kind of discovered that the baby didn't have a heartbeat. So that was just before 16 weeks. So 15 and four, I believe unfortunately on Mother's Day weekend, actually. So that was made it even worse. And the baby had stopped growing at 13 weeks. So the baby was the size of a 13 week baby, but we hadn't found out that I had miscarried until, you know, almost three weeks later. So as far as the loss component with that, and this is probably the question I get asked most about being a surrogate is how do you detach from a baby or do you feel attached or what does that attachment feel like? And I think kind of the best example I can give is that I worked as a nanny for eight years for a couple different families, three different sets of twins, actually. And while I lived with these families, because a couple of them, I was a live-in nanny when I was younger. And, you know, I raised these kids. I helped raise them. Oftentimes I was there before they got up in the morning and I was there after they went to bed. And, you know, I kissed the boo-boos. I was there for first steps. I was there for first missing teeth. I was there for first words and kind of do all of those things. But I would never consider myself the kid's mom, even though I did a lot of those motherly things. And I did very much care about these kids. I still care about them. I still kind of keep in contact on Facebook and social media and stuff with the families. And, you know, they'll always hold a special place. But I never felt attached, even though I did all of those things. You know, I'd get up in the middle of the night and snuggle them after nightmares and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I never felt attached. And I would say it's very similar when you're carrying a surrogate baby. I care about the baby I'm carrying. I want them to have a good life. I really care about these parents and their family. And I'm just a small part of what is bringing their baby back to them. I would say, you know, because a lot of people are like, oh, like you must have to detach. And I was like, I don't necessarily think it's detaching. I think it's possible to care for a baby, to care for a child and really want the best for them, but not want to be their mom. And that's exactly how I feel. So it's not a motherly attachment at all. And it really, I think the attachment really comes to the parents and the family. And that's what the loss felt like with this baby. I was devastated for these parents. This was their last embryo. This was their last chance to have a baby. And I had to call the mom at two o'clock in the morning from the emergency room to tell her that her baby had died because I needed her permission to get a DNC. And, you know, it, it's, it's tough. It's, it's heavy, you know, and it felt heavy. Too heavy. Yeah. Did she just lose her mind? 
You know, I think with this loss, this is where I gained an exceptional amount of empathy and understanding for those going through infertility. Because for me, this was the first time I had, I had ever experienced a loss. For her, this was the multiple times she had experienced a loss. And I kind of I got a little bit of a taste of what maybe that felt like for her, as well as other intended parents that have turned to surrogacy or infertility treatments for their, themselves or egg donation and a variety of things to help build their family and the experiences that, that they have gone through. And going through that loss and feeling very responsible and feeling really sad for these parents and not attached to the baby necessarily, but sad that the loss for them and that it happened inside my body. My first degree is actually in like a big part of it was grief and loss and trauma. And so I, I think I like, I really, I was really upset with how the hospital handled it. As a surrogate, I had a nurse tell me like, why why are you sad? It's not even yours. You're a surrogate. And I was like, you just, you just have no idea. I'm not a robot. I'm not heartless. This family I cared about just lost their baby. And I feel like it's my fault. This little girl lost her little sister. I was in the clear for all intents and purposes. You know, I, I was, I was past the point where that happens. And it, it was tough. I had a really traumatic DNC. I ended up hemorrhaging and I needed two, uh, two blood transfusions. I was in the hospital for about six days. You know, it was, it was tough. It was really tough. I remember meeting with the mom a few weeks later and we just went out for lunch and she wanted to kind of see me and stuff like that. And it was really hard knowing that that was the end of our kind of time together. And it wasn't necessarily the loss of the baby for me that was a loss. It was a loss of a journey. It was a loss of this surrogate story that I wanted. And, you know, of course, me being a first time surrogate, I was very naive to the process, I think. You know, I was like, I'm a surrogate. I'm so great. And like, <laughs> I almost, I literally like laugh at my like very immature baby surrogate Ariel self because I just, I feel like now when I go into surrogacy, there's so much more empathy and there's so much more understanding and so much less of this complex that I had kind of feeling like I was doing something so great. You know, while surrogacy is great, don't get me wrong. I think that surrogates are wonderful people and we're an important part of people's story to parenthood. But I think this really helped me understand and empathize with a lot of intended parents and the loss that they've experienced themselves. Do you keep in touch with the mom? We have each other on Facebook still. So kind of in that way, but not like extensively, kind of just through social media and stuff. If that was their last embryo, was that the end of their journey? It was. Yep. So that was that was their last, their last go. Yeah. It's hard for me to even hear the story like interviewing you. And so I just can't even imagine <laughs> their pain. But I also can't even imagine going home empty, you know, yeah. even as a surrogate. Like yeah. I just, I just. And the hormones are still the same, right? Your baby or not, you still have hormones and pregnancy hormones. My milk came in, which I was shocked about. I didn't think that would happen, but it did. And so that was kind of, you know, it was a lot to process. I w- I'll say that. And I'm actually a year away from graduating with my second bachelor's degree. And I, I want to become a psychotherapist and work with intended parents and surrogates through loss. And I think part of it definitely came from this experience because I had to process a lot and it took time. 
And grief as a surrogate, I think, is very misunderstood because people think you're a robot and that you should just be able to move on. And it was hard. And I think it's hard for a lot of reasons, not just the fact that, you know, feeling attached to the baby, it's it's a loss of a lot of different things. So I worked with a counselor extensively, and I'm a huge advocate for counseling, obviously, because that's what I want to do. And I worked a lot with her and being able to process these tough emotions and being able to kind of understand my feelings and wrap my head around everything that had happened. It had happened so quickly. And so it was, you know, it was a lot to process, but I came out the other side and obviously, you know, I had to go through six months of medical testing and kind of doing a lot of things with multiple doctors, fertility clinics, OBGYNs, all that kind of stuff. Had to wait for pathology to come back on the baby to find out that it was, you know, nothing that I did that caused the miscarriage. It was likely an embryo issue, a baby issue, something like that. But a lot of testing before I could be cleared to get pregnant again. I am interrupting this amazing birth story to remind you about Melissa Euler Coaching and thanking her for sponsoring this episode. The way you can get a hold of Melissa is by going to melissauler.com. That is M-E-L-I-S-S-A-U-H-L-I-R.com or following her on Instagram at Melissa Euler. And don't forget, if you book a discovery call, mention Birth Story Podcast for a free one-on-one coaching session with her, a $200 value if you book a package with her. All right, now back to this birth story. I'm so like (laughs) proud of you that the story and the journey has launched you though into like the second degree and this like big vision for the way in which you could impact even more people's lives as as a counselor. I'm really proud of what you're doing. And I, I really want to hear now like your <laughs> birth story, your first birth story. I mean, it's different because I really want to honor the life that you had in, in, a, in a DNC and a DNE are, are a type of birth, you know, but I want to get into this next, your rainbow surrogate baby. And it was for a different couple. How did you match with this couple for your second surrogacy? So I was part of an agency for all of the birth or all of the babies, except for my current one, because it's a sibling. So we already knew each other. So we didn't necessarily have to match through an agency. I met my next intended parents through an agency and they also live local to me just a few hours away. So, and the mom and I kind of connected right away. We talked on the phone, I think for like three hours, the first day we, we met and talked to each other. And I just think she's great. I adore this couple and they have a son now who's just over three (laughs) and then baby number two on the way. You know, when you meet a couple and you just are matched with them for surrogacy, you kind of just know. And that was with them. And I took two transfers to get pregnant with their son, which is normal. Everyone thinks uh, IVF is like a magical cure and you just get pregnant the first time. It's not always the case. So they, this couple had, it was their own egg and sperm. So the yes. child is a hundred percent biologically theirs because I know with yep. some surrogacies, you may be using your own egg too, or some, or a, a someone else's egg or someone else's sperm. But in this particular surrogacy, then it was a hundred percent biologically that couple's child. Yes. And your surrogacy, you were just carrying, but you didn't donate an egg to this process. That's right. So what I am is called a gestational surrogate. So that means that I'm carrying a baby that's not genetically related to me. 
The opposite of that would be traditional surrogacy, which is where the surrogate would act as a donor as well. So that can be done through IUI without having to obviously take the surrogate's eggs out. But that does happen too. You know, that that could be a case where they retrieve eggs, fertilize, and then put them back in via IVF or IUI. That is more rare, definitely, just because the laws are obviously a little bit different because the surrogate would be biologically related to the child. It's not legal everywhere. In Canada, it is, but a lot of states, actually surrogacy is not even legal in a lot of states. Traditional surrogacy is even less legal in a lot of states. So yeah, it, it is it is out there, but it's not as common. But yes, I've only ever been a gestational surrogate, meaning that I only carry embryos that are either the moms or, it, or, or the case of a donor. So I carry for two dads. Obviously, they had an egg donor. So yeah, I have only ever been a gestational surrogate. Okay, excellent. That's a really good education and difference <laughs> for us to know as we're listening to your story. Are you privy to tell us about the this parent's story? So they had a viable embryo, clearly. Was the mom just not able to hold a pregnancy? They had and do have a number of embryos still at the fertility clinic. And she had gone through multiple surgeries on her uterus and had to remove scar tissue and kind of multiple things like that. And they did eight IVF attempts on themselves. This is after, I'm assuming, trying for years to get pregnant on their own. They went to the fertility clinic. She's done multiple egg retrievals to create embryos and multiple transfers that all failed. And, you know, sometimes that can be, obviously it wasn't the embryos because I carried one of them. So it could be a lining issue. It could be a hormone issue. It could be lots of different things. And this is the reason a lot of people turn to surrogacy, right? Where they've, a lot of people who, especially uh, heterosexual couples, they've kind of probably exhausted everything before turning to surrogacy. And a lot of times those couples are coming to surrogacy with a degree of loss. And kind of, I remember my first transfer and I remember the intended mom telling me, she's like, you know, this is hard because this is the day I realized that I can't carry my own baby. And I think a lot of times we think like, oh, surrogacy, like, oh, someone else is carrying my baby. That's great. But for a lot of couples that there is an amount of loss that comes with that too. And even though I know she's very grateful for me and, you know, we have a good relationship, obviously I'm carrying their, their second baby, but there is a degree of loss for sure with that as a woman being able to not being able to carry a baby, you know, it's like biologically ingrained in us, not, not biologically, but like, I think societally in, ingrained, like, that's what you do. You, you grow up and you have babies. And I think for a lot of people in the infertility community, they feel very left out of that narrative because infertility is a medical condition and it's very stigmatized. And suddenly when you're saying that you're doing fertility treatments, everybody feels like they need to know all of your business. It can feel very invasive. I think for them, it was, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a stepping stone to get to surrogacy and it took them a long road to get there. And there was a degree of, of loss going into that. So it was tough, I think, a little bit. Obviously, you know, getting pregnant was, <laughs> was really good. It took two tries, which is normal. Okay. And then I, I was pregnant with our son. Pregnancy went great. Yeah, How did you honestly, tell them you were pregnant? Well, so they actually find out everything first. Oh. So when you're doing... Wow. When you're a surrogate, you do the transfer. And then typically about five days after that, you can start taking pregnancy tests if you choose to, home pregnancy tests. And then you go for blood work. My clinic does blood work at eight days past transfer and 10 days past transfer. And they do it twice because they want to make sure that your HCG is doubling because that would indicate a viable pregnancy. So I guess technically I did find out first because we took a test and it was positive. And we took, you, you can actually watch because as your HCG 
grows, the lines on the test get darker. So if you take a test at five days past transfer, the test line will be very, very light or faint. In my case, on this transfer, it wasn't even visible. And then six days and seven days, it starts showing up and showing up and showing up. So it's actually really interesting to see that line progression. I posted a lot of pictures on my Instagram actually about the line progression and watching the tests get darker and stuff like that. So we did find that out together. (laughs) What is your Instagram for everyone that's listening that may want to follow your journey? (laughs) Yeah, so it's at carried with love. So it's carried.with.love. I've kind of used that to document my journey. I'm very open. I'm very candid. I answer a lot of questions. There's not really much that's off the table because I use it as an educational platform to really share what surrogacy is, why it's used, how it works, and kind of be able to educate people on something that a lot of people don't know about. You are amazing. I mean, (laughs) amazing. Okay, so you find out you're pregnant. They find out, I guess, like through their doctor. Through the blood work. Through the blood work. They got the blood work first. And same with the biological sex. We found out that she kind of called me and was like, it's a boy. The clinic kind of gives them, they're the patients at the fertility clinic, right? So they kind of get all that information before I would. So they kind of called them first. So that was exciting. They got to find out. (laughs) I love it. Now, do you guys like call each other throughout your pregnancy and talk or is it hands-on, hands-off? How does like that relationship go when you're carrying? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that this is something that differs for every surrogate and every surrogate journey. There are some surrogates that do not want a relationship with the intended parents, just like there are intended parents that don't necessarily want a relationship with the surrogate. It's just really important that those people are matched with people that agree with what they want to do. So for me, I really wanted kind of an open relationship. And that's what we have. We kind of talk organically. We don't have like a set day, like every Monday, we're going to talk at three o'clock or something, but we'll text each other kind of throughout the days or here and there, or we'll, we'll call each other up or we'll meet up if either of us are in town and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's been, been kind of nice in that way. And it just kind of flows naturally, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So they were okay with you. They knew you were a VBAC. So they knew that you had mm-hmm. had a, a, you know, breach cesarean and they were okay with you planning a VBAC, but they wanted you to birth at the hospital. Yeah, definitely. So that was definitely, I I wouldn't even consider a home birth with a surrogate baby. There are some surrogates that do have home births with surrogate babies. And I think if that's something the intended parents want and that's something everybody wants, that can be really, really beautiful. For me, I think because I lost the opportunity to have a home birth with my daughter, I think it would have been strange to do that with a surrogate baby in my house and all that kind of stuff, you know, and obviously that's kind of a personal, a personal choice, but Obviously, because I was a VBAC, it was, and I had never gone into labor. So like with a plan C section, I had no labor. There was zero indication of, of how I would handle anything. So we definitely did plan to do everything in the hospital and my water broke early. So that kind of, we were in the hospital anyway. Ooh, tell me what happened. Okay. So I guess that was your, it's called premature rupture of the membrane. So I Mm -hmm. guess that was your first sign of labor was premature rupture. So what happened? Where were you? So I was actually at the mall. I actually went into labor with, with that surrogate baby and the one after both at the mall. Which is Maybe kind of you funny. spend a lot of time at the mall. <laughs> it's true because when you're pregnant in Canada and it's winter, there's nowhere to go walk around and try to walk a baby out besides the mall. This is so true. <laughs> oh my goodness. So were you with your daughter? I wasn't with my daughter. I was with my partner and some friends and stuff. And we were walking around and uh, my water broke. And I kind of felt like a pop. And I was like, oh. So I went to the bathroom and I was like, my water broke. So we drove home. We were a few hours from home, actually. So we, we drove back to London and went to the hospital. 
they were like, Oh, like you're not really gushing. Like we don't, we don't know if your water actually broke. So they checked me. I was like, not even one centimeter. I was like, like not like a fingertip dilated. They say. How many weeks gestation were you? 35 and five. Oh, so that's what we call preterm premature rupture of the membranes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, so I went home They were like, yeah, no, no, we don't think it happened. And I was like, okay. This is very (laughs) curious to me. It is very easy to tell. There's like at least five different tests. You can look at the fluid under a microscope. You can do like pH balance. Like there's so many things you can do to confirm water rupture. I'm so confused by a hospital saying they are not sure if your water broke. Hmm. Yeah, they were like, well, we don't think it did because they they would have me like stand up and start squatting. And like nothing was coming out. So they were yeah. like, mm, no, but I think that like, maybe there was like a, something popped and a leak and then his head fell down and kind of resealed. Yeah. And resealed <laughs> everything. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's, if they could get any fluid, so maybe they weren't able to get any additional amniotic fluid yeah. because the head yeah. resealed the sack. But if you can get any, just for anyone listening, if you can get any drop of fluid, you can confirm very easily if that's amniotic fluid mm-hmm. versus urine. <laughs> Yeah. So I, they so, sent me home. This was at like one o'clock in the morning. Cause okay. I got there at like 1130. So one o'clock in the morning, they sent me home. I go to bed and I put a bunch of garbage bags down. Cause I was like, I can promise you my water broke and it's going to break again. Like, or, or it's going to like, something's going to happen. I just knew. Yeah. So I put all the garbage bags down. I go to bed and sure enough at like six o'clock in the morning, I had the giant water break experience. Okay. It was like insane. Like soak the garbage bag, soak the towels, like I was like, and this is why I put them down. <laughs> Good job. Your, your um, intuition yeah. right there. Was I remember kicking actually, in. I, was, I went to the bathroom and I'm like sitting there and I had the big jug and I was like holding it under me. And I was like, am I peeing? And, and he's like, uh, I don't think you can pee like a giant jug of fluid repeatedly over and over and over again. I was no. like, true. Fair point. <laughs> I honestly couldn't believe it because I wasn't in labor. Like I had no contractions. I felt fine, except I was like gushing water. So I got in the shower. I like shaved my legs and like got everything ready. Took my time, called my doula, called the parents and all that kind of stuff. They were on standby because they knew that I had gone to the hospital the night before and we were kind of all just waiting. So everybody knew. Okay. We went to the hospital around. And they're probably like, we have a month left to go. (laughs) And now they're like, guess that month is gone. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So. Then I went into the hospital the next morning, kind of a few hours later, called my doula, everything went in. They're like, yep, your, your water definitely broke. <laughs> and you still were not having contractions. No contractions, nothing. And I was not dilated. I was still that fingertip dilated. So they were like, they sent me to go walk around because they were waiting for a birthing suite to open up. So they sent me to kind of just walk around for a little bit, walked around, did some lunges down the hallway. Like, it's funny. We have this funny video of me and my daughter and my doula and my mom. And I'm like sitting there like lunging down the hallway, trying to like get something going. It did not work. Now you Uh, said daughter, doula, mom. Were the parents invited into your birthing space? Yes. Yes. They just weren't there yet. I wasn't even in a birthing room yet. They, you know, they were, they were kind of making plans and getting all their stuff ready on their end and planning to drive to London. So at that point, I was still still just with like my people, I guess. <laughs> so we finally got a birthing suite a few hours later, and I still was not having any contractions. So and baby was doing great. Like he, he was fine. So they were like, you know what? We're going to start Pitocin. So they did. Very interesting. I have to interject here. They don't always use Pitocin with a VBAC. I did not know that. Yeah. 
So I'll just put a little side note in there. As of recently, and this was three years ago, there has been a lot more use of Pitocin with VBACs and inductions. When I first became a doula 16 years ago, they would not use Pitocin on a VBAC. It was just like, if you had to be induced, you were going to have to have a cesarean section. So it's very wonderful that we're now able to use some providers, able to use Pitocin to, you know, help promote the augmentation of labor in this case. So very, I just want to make that note. If anyone's listening and they're like, wait, I was forced into a repeat C-section because my provider wouldn't use Pitocin. Someone out there is going to listen and hear this and be really upset. And so I want to make that clear. It's not every provider uses Pitocin, what year you gave birth. But if you are a VBAC, talk to your provider. That's a great question to ask is, can I be induced as a VBAC? Could you use Pitocin or are you comfortable using Pitocin for my birth? So they started Pitocin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The lovely stuff. Started contractions, you know, obviously. (laughs) Now, had you had a doula, were you interested in having an unmedicated birth? Yes. So that was the plan. Until your water broke prematurely and you had to get on Pitocin. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I still had planned to go without the epidural. I was on Pitocin for 21 hours. I know, which actually seems like an absurd amount of time, but it went by very quickly. And I was in the birth tub. I, I honestly was laboring really well. I was in lots of different positions, trying, you know, working baby down. And then they checked me and I was one centimeter after 21 hours on Pitocin. And at this point, you know, I had been, I had gotten like four hours of sleep because I went home at like one o'clock in the morning, was up at six when the water broke. And, you know, I then gone to the hospital and then 21 hours later, it was just a really, really busy time. So after about 21 hours, I was just exhausted. I wasn't progressing and baby was great. So they weren't, they were just kind of monitoring. His heart rate was amazing. Everything was good. So I was like, you know what? I need to sleep. So I got the epidural slept for a bunch of hours (laughs) and then kind of woke up. And I think I woke up at four centimeters. So my body just kind of needed that break and that rest to be able to progress further. And honestly, from there, things kind of moved quite quickly. So periodically, the intended parents were kind of coming in and out. It was obviously a very long labor. So they were not there the entire 21 hours. I was just laboring at one centimeter. They had to go to the hotel. They had to sleep. They had to get food, all that kind of stuff. So I kind of kept them updated or my doula kept them updated. We had a very full room. My uh, friend was there. My mom was there. My doula was there. The parents were there. Like it was very, like very busy, which was nice. I think everybody should get the opportunity to see a birth. And I am more than happy to have people be there to see a birth because I've always wanted to see one in person and I never have except for my own. (laughs) So I think if someone has the opportunity, I think it's great. (laughs) I think so too. My dad was at my second birth because he had never seen a baby be born. Like all of us were born in the seventies and there just weren't, they just didn't let the dads in at the time. So when I was pregnant, he was like, can I come to your birth? And I was like, weird ish, but sure. And um, he was right by my side, watched the whole thing, took pictures. It was wonderful. If anyone's open to it, I think one of the greatest gifts that you could give someone is inviting them into your birth space to see a baby be born. It is a magical life-changing experience. So I love that you had a full, I had a party room too. So I love that you had a full room in these intended parents. So they were going to, they came and checked on you, but they were going to come back for the grand finale. So your epidural did its job, which was to let your body (laughs) 
relax and release and let you enjoy this birthing time after 21 hours of, you know, hard work on Pitocin. I think that was a great decision to help move you in the direction of a vaginal birth, which was something that you were really committed to. So you said it kind of went quickly from there. So like, do do tell (laughs) like, okay, you're four and then what? Yeah. So kind of periodically they checked me and I was progressing. I was kind of moving along. We got up to seven centimeters. And so they checked me and the nurse was like, okay, you're seven centimeters. This is great. So I kind of let the parents know. I was like, hey, come back to the hospital. I'm seven centimeters. You know, obviously things are kind of moving. At this point, you know, things were progressing steadily. So I was like, okay, come back. And so everyone's back and I'm just laying there. And my epidural, I let it wear off because I really wanted to be able to push well and be able to, I didn't want to not feel anything. So I'd kind of let it wear off a little bit. And, uh, and I was like, um, just laying there. I'm like, I think the baby's coming out. And she's like, no, no. Like we just checked you like 10 minutes ago. Like you're only seven centimeters. They'll come check you again in an hour. And I was like, uh, it feels like there's a lot of pressure down there. And she's like, no, I got a blanket over. Right. And she's like, oh, like, okay, we'll check you in like, you know, half an hour. Maybe I'll let them know. And, and I was like, I think you might want to come check now. <laughs> and she came over and she pulled the blanket. She's like, Oh, okay. You're crowning. And I was like, awesome. <laughs> They're like the baby was like right there. They could see his head. And then I remember it was like chaos ensued. Okay. So like, she literally like hit the emergency button on the wall and she like slammed the bed down into the birthing position, which is like, they put the middle part down and the leg parts are up and then they're moving me all around. And they're getting me in position. And the parents come running in and everybody's there and everybody's like running around frantically. And it was like this like crazy, like a movie moment where I was like, okay, it's happening now. And literally I pushed twice and he was out in 11 minutes. Wow. (laughs) That is so fast. Okay. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I'm getting really excited. Crazy. So first of all, okay. Couldn't be been that big of a baby, like to slide, slide right out because I was going to say this is your first vaginal birth or whatever. The very first thing I have to know is like, what were you looking at? Like, I want to know all about the parents' reactions. I'm yeah. like, are you looking at the baby? Are you looking at the parents? Are you like, what was it like to see them get their baby finally? Yeah. So this was probably the best thing I've, like one of the best things I've ever experienced in my entire life. So I'm laying there and I'm on my back because obviously that's the epidural birthing position. And the parents were up on my right side, kind of right by my head and stuff. And I remember pushing and um, obviously it happened very, very quickly, right? So there was, there was not a lot of pushing time. It was like, get in position and baby's coming. And so I remember we have, we have it actually on video, you know, his head came out and it was very creepy because his head came out and you know how they, the baby's head comes out usually facing down and they kind of turn them sideways almost. Well, the baby came out with his eyes open, okay? Eyes wide open and literally looking up at his parents. (laughs) And they were like, his eyes are open. (laughs) It was so funny. But they were right there. And I remember I was holding onto the mom's like arm, like the last push. And he was only six pounds, four ounces. I didn't tear it and nothing. He was, it was a very, very easy delivery. That's a good Um, size for 35 weeks. Yeah, he was. He was a very good size. As an aside, he was perfectly healthy. He didn't go to the NICU. He had no time anywhere. His scores were perfect. The NICU team was obviously there because he was an early delivery, but they saw him. They were like, no, he's fine. And then it it was, he was kind of treated perfectly fine after that. So does he like go straight to the intended parents or does he go up on your chest? Like where is he delivered to? So when 
he was born and they kind of pulled him out. They did have to kind of put him up on my belly because he was still attached. <laughs> now, there are some cases where the intended mom or the dad can actually help deliver the baby and kind of hold them. But that kind of wasn't the case in this one. So they were beside me. They pulled him up and kind of put him right onto my chest-ish, like just so that they, you know, they obviously couldn't put him too far away. <laughs> So the parents were right there. They got to see him. He started crying right away. And we have the video of when he started crying. And you can see the parents' faces. And like, I had just had a VBAC. So I was like on cloud nine. And it was just this like incredible experience. And so they got to cut the cord. And so then as soon as they cut the cord, then they kind of took the baby off me and put him over to clean him off and stuff. And then mom went down and sat down in the chair over by the like the bassinet kind of thing. So they cleaned him off, checked his scores, obviously wanted to make sure that everything was okay before, but everything was great. So and in the video, you can see them kind of wipe him down and everything like that. And the dad's over there just look at him. He's so cute. He's so little. And it was so cute. And mom's sitting there getting ready to do skin to skin. So she, she was wearing like a tank top and kind of had her tank top open so they could put the baby like kind of in and then yeah. wrap him up so she could do skin to skin. And and we have it on video the moment they put him on her chest and she puts her arms around him and her whole face just like melts. And it's like, she got to, she's finally holding this little boy that she has wanted for so many years and has tried so hard to have and grow and, and be able to, and, you know, because of somebody like me, she's able to have her baby, her biological baby right there with her. And and then dad comes over and they're both there and their, their little son is there. And like, honestly, it was just beautiful. It was really, really great. I can barely handle it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to need some tissues over here. Oh my gosh. It it's was just honestly, magical. Just, it was, it was, it was like, you're just suspended in time. And I remember afterwards, cause we were in the delivery room for a few hours after and everything was, was good. And so I remember they wanted to go and call everybody. So they brought the baby over to me and I got to kind of hold him and snuggle him. So we have this cute picture of me like laying on my side, like, and the baby's kind of right here. And I, I have this cute picture of me like holding him. And he's like, it almost looks like he's like looking up at me and stuff, like smiling. And like, it was, it was really cute. Like, and thank I like you think, for, yes, yeah, exactly. It's like, thank you for carrying me. <laughs> it was really, really cute. And carried um, with love. It was just great. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's really part of the reason I, came up with that, that Instagram handle a year ago when I started the page, because, you know, they are, they, they are carried with love. I take care of that little baby. And I love that little baby. I don't want to take it home. I don't want your baby, but I will take very good care of it and, you know, give it back to you and be very, very happy that you have your baby back. Yeah. And now you're pregnant right now. This is a couple <laughs> that you're pregnant with again. Yes. Oh, yes. this is so amazing. <laughs> For you and for them, like that you get to do this thing, this like the one of the greatest acts of love. And then these parents get to receive this gift. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just incredible. Like the world needs more aerials in in our (laughs) world. I mean, this is so incredible. I'm so thankful for you and all your powerful stories. Gosh, I wish we had time to get to all of them, but. (laughs) Will you come back and tell the story after you give birth to this baby? (laughs) Of course. And then we'll talk about your surrogacy with the two dads too. Mm -hmm. So like, I would love to have you back on and we'll do like part two. When are you due, by the way? Like probably the spring, like 
April 18th. However, I've never made it to a due date. So I'm thinking it'll be more the beginning of April. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe we'll connect around like Mother's Mm -hmm. Day and record part two with Ariel. Before we go, I just had another question, like a follow-up question out of curiosity. With any of your surrogacies, did you have like a breastfeeding journey or what did you do about your milk coming in? Did you pump Mm -hmm. it for the parents or did you dry your milk up? So with that baby that we just talked about, I, I did pump a little bit, but more so for relief. I'm a really bad pumper, like 45 minutes and it's like two ounces. It's awful. <laughs> so even if I wanted to pump for the parents, uh, which they didn't want, they just wanted to go straight to formula. It was obviously just much easier for them. I don't think I would have been able to pump anyways, and I didn't want the extra stress. So that was more just pump for relief and then just dry up. So with my most recent surrogate baby, Ari, I actually did breastfeed him in the hospital just while we were there for the few days just to get the colostrum and everything like that. And then once we went home, then he went to formula and I dried up. And for anyone wondering a very good way to dry up, peppermint oil. That pregnancy was the first time I had used peppermint oil. And I literally just put it with coconut oil and like rubbed it. And I was dried up in like two days with like very little pain. Peppermint and eucalyptus is another one too. So cabbage leaves. But I think that that if you are listening and you don't know that and you are ready to get rid of that milk for lots of different reasons, right? Like, especially since we're talking about infant loss awareness, like if you have lost a child and your milk comes in, peppermint oil mixed with like a carrier lotion is a great way to get your milk to dry up quickly. So yeah. Yeah. And Sudafed. <laughs> another one too. <laughs> that one too. <laughs> I was like, that's another one. Dehydrate yeah. yourself. I don't know. I yeah. could do a whole podcast on drying up your milk supply. Well, Ariel, I've just enjoyed our morning together so much. I love who you are, your spirit, what you are doing for this world, for these parents. I hope everyone is going to follow you on Instagram. I'll link to it in the show notes. And I can't wait to chat with you again to hear all about this <laughs> fifth pregnancy fourth surrogacy journey. You are a star. Thank you for being on the birth story podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for sticking with us all the way to the end and listening to this incredible birth story. And thanks again to Melissa Euler of Melissa Euler Coaching for sponsoring this episode. If you find yourself at the end of this episode, wanting more, needing more, seeking more, for your life, for your transitions, for your personal goals. I urge you, reach out to Melissa for support at melissauler.com, M-E-L-I-S-S-A-U-H-L-I-R.com or on social at Melissa Euler. You guys, I'm serious. I had zero dollars two years ago, no job, stay-at-home mom when I found out it was gonna be just me. Today, just two years later, She helped me grow a more than six-figure business. I am thriving as a single mom, and I am so thankful for her coaching. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go, and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up plan and prepare for the birth you want, no matter what that looks like. 